want to share with you a proverb from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12, which says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. You see, we live in a culture that can't wait to have its desires fulfilled. We live in a, we have, we have fast food, we have streaming services, we have instant access, we have buy now, pay later. We have live feeds all over the place. We want it, and we want it now. So it may be a little difficult for us this morning as we get into this passage to understand that the arrival of the Savior of the world was the release of thousands of years of pressure and desire and longing and hoping. And that great breath of fresh air upon a world where, frankly, stale air had become the norm for so long. And we do have some perspective, though. We have some things in life where we have to wait for desire to be fulfilled. Nine months on the average for a baby to be born. Sometimes for the moms, that seems like a long time of waiting. If someone is deployed overseas, waiting for them to return home can feel like an eternity. Or waiting for someone to come home while they're, while they're away at training. Or waiting for a response for the job application. Or waiting for the results back from the blood work or the MRI. Waiting for winter to end. <laughs> waiting for the crops to be ready for harvest. Waiting and praying, sometimes perhaps for, for decades, for someone you love to come to Jesus. But how these th those things actually come to pass, how they actually show up, is often not quite what we, ex what we expect. We saw that last week in our time in John, that the Jews had gotten some expectations of Christ, of the Christ, the Savior of the world, Jesus, wrong, and were trying to focus on John the Baptist when he wanted them to have eyes that were looking more to a more worthy Savior. But now the Savior of the world is going to be revealed. Thousands of years of waiting, hundreds of God's promises still unfulfilled, coming right to this moment, which we're going to read about today, where the last of the Old Covenant prophets opens his mouth and proclaims that thus says the Lord is physically right in front of everybody. And the heart sickness of the world is about to be transformed into a tree of life. And he wants to do that in us today. So hopefully you've gotten to John chapter 1. And if you have, would you stand this morning with me in honor of, the, of God's word that we shall read today? John chapter 1, beginning in verse 29. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, 
this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. You can have a seat. Jesus is revealed as the sacrificial Son who saves. These five verses are incredible. They're going to shape how we understand the Word made flesh, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, the true light coming into the world, the object of John's humble witness, and what Jesus, the sacrificial Son, is going to do in bringing the fulfillment of a long-deferred hope and desire. John here is telling us things about Jesus that are designed to help us believe Jesus because how Jesus is going to bring about a desire fulfilled, how he's going to bring about life in his name, as John chapter 20, verse 31 says, it may be hard to grasp at times how he's going to do this. But today, hopefully, we'll see. So here we go. After his exchange with the Jews the previous day, it says the next day, John is among the crowd in the Jordan, and he sees Jesus coming toward him. And the first words out of his mouth are, Behold, that is, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here the nation is of Israel, waiting for the Christ, wondering who it's going to be, who's going to deliver them from Roman occupation and oppression. And John sees Jesus coming and calls him the Lamb. We live on the other side of the cross and in the reality of the empty tomb. Praise God for that. So often when, when we hear this, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we think, oh yeah, the Lamb of God said with a sense of triumph. And it is true. We should. We should say it that way. Even John the Baptist preached that judgment was coming near, so John may have understood this lamb as triumphant. So yeah, Jesus is going to show up and he's going to conquer. Yeah! But what does the text say about this lamb of God? Behold the lamb of God who takes away what? Rome? Who takes away what? Who takes away, verse 29 says, the sin of the world. Real salvation requires the real sacrifice. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What? The Jews of that day might object. They say, John, John, that's not really necessary. We have the temple system, and we sacrifice a lamb every morning and every evening, and we've done so for hundreds of years ever since we came back from exile. And we have the Day of Atonement, where we sacrifice a bunch of animals to take away sins. We need a Savior who will take away the Romans and any other enemy. Besides, we're the righteous children of Abraham. Sin of the world. That was for the Jews in that day. And for us today, <laughs> we barely use the word sin outside of this service. So long as something doesn't hurt someone according to our definition of hurt or offend the wrong group according to our definition of the right or wrong group, 
There is no sin. That's just a word today that is out of touch with the way things are. Even professing Christians stay away from this word because we mistakenly think that in doing so, in staying away from that word, we're emphasizing grace. We want to be positive and encouraging people. Jesus came so that we could feel great. Now, I'm not being entirely facetious here. What I said is not 100% wrong. Grace did come through Jesus Christ. So we should be a people who emphasize grace. And Jesus wasn't always a Debbie Downer. And so we shouldn't be either. The Bible actually promises the most amazing things that are true and positive. And it also says that we should speak and remind one another of these things and encourage one another of these things because we default to discouragement so much. And when we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, there is a sense in which we should feel great because the greatest gift, salvation through Jesus, is given to us freely. But none of this happens. None of it happens if we don't take sin seriously like Jesus does. It doesn't make any sense that Jesus, who we will see later, dies on a cross to take away sin. It doesn't make any sense that Jesus would die on a cross to take away what really isn't a problem. So what is sin? Well, according to the New City's Catechism, sin is, this is a good definition, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. Or put it more succinctly, as 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says, sin is lawlessness. So when John the Baptist in this passage says that the Lamb of God comes to take away the sin of the world, he is declaring that there is truly a state of the world, the entire world that is at odds with God. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without sacrifice, there is no possibility of being made right with God. Without sacrifice, there is no lasting encouragement. There's no lasting peace. Without sacrifice, there is no hope. There is no life. The Jews in Jesus' day, and we ourselves, have the greatest of problems if there is not a sacrifice sufficient to cover our sin. Forget Rome for a minute. There is no, if there is no su- sacrifice sufficient to cover our sin, we're without hope. And that's the kicker. The sacrifice has to be sufficient. They sacrificed animals day after day after day for hundreds of years in Israel. But can the blood of animals take away sins? 
much less the sin of the world? Can a sinful human sacrifice his own life to pay for anyone's sin, even his own? No. Because we haven't offended ourselves, ultimately. We haven't offended each other, ultimately. We've offended the holy, infinite God. No, real salvation requires the real sacrifice. We can't do enough good deeds and kind words to be an acceptable sacrifice. And for our sin, the sin of the world, human rebellion, it requires a human death. Otherwise, the wages of sin, as the book of Romans says, is still death. And we're on the cross for our sins. We need a sacrifice who can stand in our place because he's perfect. And who will stand in our place because he's merciful. Well, good news. Scripture does speak of that kind of sacrifice. That kind of sufficient sacrifice. There is one sacrifice that can take away the sin of the world. There is one sacrifice that can make you and me right with God. There is one sacrifice that can meet our greatest need and free us from our greatest pain and slavery. There is example after example in the scriptures of what is called fancy term doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That is, Jesus, the Lamb of God, came to die as a sacrifice to take not only our sins away, but to take our place. There's a story in the book of Genesis from the life of Abraham that highlights this. It says, in Genesis chapter 22, in the life of Abraham, it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. Abraham! He said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now imagine you are asked by God to take someone you love, one of your children, perhaps, if you have children, and you're to go off to a far mountain, you're to kill him, or her, and burn them as an offering to God. So Abraham arose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose, and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both of them went together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. 
When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order, to, in order and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, in the, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. You see, the merciful God provided a sacrifice for Abraham then. It wasn't Isaac, but it wasn't a lamb either. Here, several thousand years later, God did exactly what Abraham said. God himself provided the lamb. And he didn't spare his son, his only son. And he is the one who takes away the sin of the world by being the real sacrifice in our place, who takes away our sin. Real salvation requires a real sacrifice. But how do we know that it's Jesus who's the sacrifice? Not just, he's not, not just some guy that dies and then everybody just says it. How do we know it's Jesus? You and I didn't come here today to worship the Lord Jesus, knowing that he is the sacrificial son who saves, just by our own conjuring up, just by our own wits. We didn't just somehow all gather together and that was what was on everybody's mind. Look at what this text says. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but this, for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, on he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Did you hear all the seeing language there? And the speaking language? Jesus doesn't show up and everyone magically knows who he is. No. Real recognition requires real revelation. That's John's whole job. He is to prepare the way by two things. Baptizing and bearing witness. Both are given by God to reveal Jesus as the Lamb of God, as the Son of God. How does John's baptism do this? It seems kind of weird. For this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. 
He's baptizing with water as a display of cleansing for the Jews that they would identify with a repentant people who have changed their minds, siding with God against their sins. But God has had something revealed, but John has had something revealed to him about one person he's going to baptize. Verse 33, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Do you remember who sent John the Baptist? Chapter 1, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. God sent John the Baptist. And God the Father, who sent John the Baptist, told John that when he baptized the Christ, he would see the confirming sign. The Holy Spirit would come down and remain on this man. (laughs) Here it is again in John. God the Holy Trinity at work. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now the Spirit here remaining is significant because up until Jesus, no one in history was recorded as having the Holy Spirit stay with them. In the Old Testament, people like, people like King Saul or Samson were filled with the Holy Spirit for special roles. But it was never communicated as permanent. But here, the Holy Spirit remains permanently with Jesus. And it's not as though Jesus was a mere man before the Holy Spirit came on him. Jesus has always been God and will always be God. But it is so that Jesus would be revealed that the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, God himself, comes down, shows up to bear witness that Jesus is the divine Son of God. That's why John says twice in this section, I myself did not know him. Jesus was related to John. So John might have known about Jesus, but as to Jesus' significance, his person, his mission, John didn't have a clue. It had to come to John through divine revelation. God telling him, hey, did you see the Spirit come on Jesus and stay there? Yeah, Yeah, that's him. That's my son. Jesus has to be revealed to John, and he has to be revealed to us. But before we jump, as many unfortunately have, to thinking that the way God is interacting with John the Baptist here that is, speaking directly to him the way God spoke to the prophets. We have to be careful to think of thinking that this is in any way a normal way for all the people of God to talk, to hear God's voice. That is, direct speech. We have to ask this question, how was Jesus revealed to Israel, according to this passage? Because there was only one person to whom direct speech was given. That was John. And there were thousands, perhaps millions of others who didn't get that direct word. I myself did not know him, verse 31, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So this means that the prophet John was given prior knowledge of what to look for as he was baptizing. And as he was baptizing with water, he baptized Jesus And as he says in verse 32, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. John receives the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, confirmed by the Spirit coming down and remaining on Jesus. And as a prophet of God, 
can see Jesus coming and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And at the end of verse 34, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The people around John and we ourselves are given God's word to confirm the identity of the Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why throughout the history of the church we have valued this book so highly. Because it tells us who God is. It's just as the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in his second letter, that the book, this book of scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation, he says, through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So when John bears witness of what he has seen and heard of Jesus, recognizing that Jesus is the Lamb of God, indeed the Son of God, he is communicating what has been revealed to him. And we're given that revelation in this book. Do you ever wonder why it is then that the Bible is the number one published book in the history of the world? And yet it seems that so many people may have heard the name Jesus, but they don't know him as the Christ, the Son of God, as John does here. I don't know if you've ever watched the show, An Undercover Boss. It's pretty interesting. If you haven't, the show is basically what it sounds like. A CEO or high-level executive of a company, he puts on ordinary clothes and goes to work with the everyday employees. And what I found fascinating about this show is that so many of the employees may have even seen a picture of the CEO, may even have it on like, like their wall in the store. But he or she is working right alongside them, and they don't recognize him or her. And it's, it's usually at the end of the last episode when the employee is invited to the company headquarters, and they're in the room, and then the great moment is the CEO walks in and says, Hi, I'm so-and-so, CEO of this company. And they have the camera focused on the, on the person, and the light bulbs go on. And they're like, oh, jeez, they heard all this stuff that I said, they saw all this that I did. That the recognition of who they've been working for, who they've been sharing life stories with, is actually their boss. The employee didn't recognize their boss until he or she was revealed to them. Jesus asked his disciples once in Matthew 16, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of God, the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Our real recognition of who Jesus is requires revelation. And in believing the revelation of the real sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we experience real salvation. But there's one more element in this passage that God would have us know through John the Baptist. He does proclaim, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But there's something else that he says that Jesus does. 
Read with me in verse 33. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? John's baptism is not enough. It was like the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of the Old Covenant. It was to it was to find its fulfillment in Jesus, not to be an end in itself. John baptized with a baptism of water for repentance, he says in the other Gospels. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. You know what that means? That means the real Son of God not only saves from, he saves to. The good news is not just that Jesus is the Christ who can save us from our sins. The good news is also that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, we may have life in his name. And how else do we receive that new life except that the Holy Spirit come down and remain on and in us, just like it did Jesus. When it says here that Jesus is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, one commentator put, but it, Jesus can bring God's Spirit to us in such a way that we are saturated and our life and being are flooded with that Spirit. Baptism with water covers with water. Your skin gets soaked, your hair gets soaked, your clothes get soaked, everything gets soaked with water. When Jesus comes to take away our sin, we are baptized with the Holy Spirit that he sends in our lives. And so much more is soaked and saturated with the life of the divine God through the Son of God. This is huge. This is huge. Jesus is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. When he comes, taking away your sin and you believe in him, your sin is really taken away. It's forgiven. It is paid for. You are set free from having to pay it yourself. You are no longer a slave to it as you once were. It's taken away. This is amazing, and we should praise God for that. But when Jesus takes away your sin, you who believe in him, what's the question? What's next? What is next after Jesus takes away your sin? I need to preface this by saying that what this text is teaching does not at all minimize the need for having our sins taken away. That's a big deal. Sin keeps us at, at an infinite distance from God, and that's a terrible place to be. But Jesus is both the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the Son of God who baptizes with the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Son of God has died once for sins. That's how effective his sacrificial death is. One time done. He doesn't need to do it again, ever. And we should never expect him to do it again. And we'll spend some time later in John looking at that and being shaped by that here as we study. But in the scheme of eternity, sin has a very small shelf life. We don't often feel like that's the case. 
I mean, our experience of things is it's, it's sin and struggle almost from be, basically from beginning to end. But the truth is we, we haven't experienced enough of eternity to know. Paul writes in his epic letter to the Romans, For the creation was subject to futility, this is chapter 8, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of, as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Hope! That's what God is getting at when he tells John that Jesus, the Son of God, is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. John then proclaims and witnesses that this plan is all tied to, with this Jesus. And just under 2,000 years ago, after Christ descended, ascended, went up into heaven, it was as if he opened a dam and let loose a river. And the book of Acts records in chapter 2. Disciples were gathered in a room, and suddenly, it says, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. You hear that same thing. It came down and it remained. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The eternal Son of God. The Lamb who was slain and has conquered. The book of Revelation talks a lot about that. In whom is life. And he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not merely about salvation from. No, no, no. Jesus, what John is saying here is that Jesus is also very much about salvation too. To what? New life. The Spirit of God. You look over the Bible. Where was he? He was over the surface of the waters when God created the heavens and the earth. And he's right there when Jesus makes the new creation. Saving someone, someone dead in their sins. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. That life is made. That life is sustained. That life is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit with whom Jesus baptizes us. John bears witness that the eternal Son of God will have nothing less than God-breathed life in those who believe in him. And that life being like his life forevermore. That is good news. That is really good news. It's not just from something that was bad. It's to something that is great. How much we need this news, church. How much the world needs this news. That sin can be taken away through Christ. And that there is a God-shaped, God-breathed, God-transformed life that comes when that sin is taken away. So who will be John to those who are still without hope? Who will be John to those who, in this congregation who are discouraged? Who upon reading this has said, yes, I believe this, or 
I have believed this. Yes, it's good to hear it again. Then as John did, you are to gladly open your mouth and proclaim the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that this is the Son of God. Because Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, has been revealed to you. And you have been saved from sin to life. You have been given the life of God and the power of God in the Holy Spirit. So, we need to ask ourselves, is there anyone in our lives who needs this good news? To either hear it for the first time or rehear it because life has given them such a beating. Jesus didn't bring salvation by showing up in a cloud way up there. He will come back that way, breaking through the sky, but his return will not be for the purpose of seeing people come to faith in him. His return is for the vindication of his church, that is, those who have embraced him, the exaltation of his name that every knee should bow, and the judgment of those who have not believed before his return. How did Jesus bring salvation? He brought salvation by coming near. A man who came to people as the desire fulfilled, the tree of life. And now he sits at the right hand of his Father, bringing salvation by coming near through his Holy Spirit, whom he sends to everyone who believes, that we might too proclaim through faith with our lips and our lives, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we can bear witness that this Jesus is the Son of God. And we too can be part of the giving of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we cannot pray this enough. Thank you for sending your Son. Thank you that you have not left us without hope. But thank you, Lord, that I mean, we are such a blessed people today because we live on the other side of what you have done. And we are part of the newness that you are making. And we are waiting for you to come back. And as we wait, Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would proclaim the good news to people who need desperately to hear it. Lord, for we, would, we want the people who are ready to meet you to be a big, big group. And we want to see more people come to know you. And we want to encourage one another. We ask for your help to encourage one another in this good news. That even though there are rough things in our lives, you are still the Son of God. You are still the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you are always, always, always with us. Lord, we thank you we thank you for your word. We thank you for the faithfulness of John the Baptist to do what he was called to do. We ask for your help to follow you and to trust you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.